Hello and welcome to Weird Together, where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camel, host of The Cardinal Rule. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how you doing? I am good. The semester's wrapping up. I am getting ready to go on the summer break, teach a few online classes. But, uh, you know, one of the joys of teaching is, you know, these long breaks. And I am looking forward to uh, not doing much for the next week or two before I actually try to undertake a few projects. So overall doing well. How are you, Bren? I'm good. I'm good. My time, as I mentioned last episode, my time in Montreal is winding down. I, I have been forcibly relocated four floors up from my previous room. So if I seem a little quieter on this episode, it's because we're recording it at 10 o'clock at night and my new roommates keep much more normal hours than my previous roommates. My previous roommates, you know, I, I was, as I was saying to Joseph off air, I'd get up at four in the morning to use a can and at least one of them would still be awake. I remember one time getting up at five and he was still awake, whereas these guys have nine to five jobs. So you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to play the tuba for you the way I'd hoped. But other than that, we should be fine. So now, as we were talking about this before, you're the weird one now, right? I mean, I always have been, but it's become <laughs> really, like, really clear since coming up here. You know, I, I realized that they weren't quite sure what to make of me when I, I walked out of the bathroom just in a towel. You know, and, and I realized, well, we had reached that point with my old roommates. You know, everyone just kind of making eggs in your underwear is not a big deal. And I noticed here everyone cooks fully clothed. And so I'm thinking, all right, fine. I got to adjust some things. <laughs> but we are not here to talk about me cooking eggs in my underpants, although that would be a great show. <laughs> so says you. <laughs> Someone has to, Joseph. Let me have this. I need this. But yes, we are not here to talk about such things. We are here instead to talk about this week's film. And it is a film, Joseph, that is the antithesis of that garbage movie we didn't do. A couple episodes back, that movie is Ennis Main. Ennis Main tells the story of the volunteer, a, well, volunteer, on a remote island off the coast of Cornwall. And Joseph, I don't even know how to describe this. Really, basically just her entire perception of time starts to fall apart. What's real, what's not, who freaking knows? That is the story of Ennis Main. And Joseph, I, th that makes it sound not great. And I actually quite like this movie, <laughs> but I, I was really kind of struggling because I, I don't, you, it's hard to describe right. what happens in the film. You know, th this podcast could almost be called Bren makes Joseph watch experimental horror movies. <laughs> that, that's true. It's, and just kind of see how I react to it though, as we'll talk about, um, I rather liked this film as well. And I would describe it as a descent into madness seems to be kind of what this is about, um, but there's a lot more to it than that. I really think so too. But before we talk about the film, of course, you never go into a movie completely blind. You take every movie you've ever seen in there with you. And so before we talk about Ennis Main, we're going to take apart the baggage. All right, Joseph, what if any baggage did you have going into Ennis Main? So I, I had no familiarity with this filmmaker. That's a recurring theme here. You know, a lot of these are new films for me and new filmmakers. But I have been uh, made to watch by my good friend Bren a handful of films that were either shot in 16 millimeter or that tried to emulate the look of 16 millimeter. 
Scare of Sixty First, A Wounded Fawn, Skin of Marink. So I couldn't help but compare this this film to those, right? And 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 there I did have some comparisons, at least to a couple of those, or at least uh, things that I thought this did that were kind of interesting, comparable to those, or maybe even better than some of those. So that was really the main baggage, is comparing this to other sixteen millimeter shot films. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know going in that it was shot in 16. That was, that was not part of my baggage. Uh, for me, my baggage going in, I, I didn't know much about it. It was actually similar to you. But since I've been in Montreal, I've been watching a lot of movies at this place called Cinema de Parc. And it's sort of, well, there's actually, a, there's a really great movie scene here. I got to be honest. That's one of the things I'm going to miss when I go back to Victoria. And one of the things they do at, at, at Parc is just they, they have all these great independent films. Like uh, day after tomorrow in the afternoon, I'm going to see this, I think it's a Serbian film, not a Serbian film, which is incredibly <laughs> fucked up. As a genre? But it's, <laughs> no, no, there's a film called A Serbian Film. Oh, that's what it's called, okay. That is supremely fucked. Uh, okay. Look it up on Wikipedia. I, I've never seen it, I never will. The film they're playing is called, I think it's Phi 1.618, and it's this uh, again, crazy. It might be Serbian, might be Czech. I can't remember, but it's this kind of wacky sci-fi film, and they just have stuff like that. And so I've been going to Park, going to their after midnight screenings, and they kept playing a trailer for Ennis Main. It looked really spooky. I thought, eh, I'm getting kind of the witch vibes from this. Have you seen the witch? Mm, I have loved it. Yeah. So I was getting kind of the witch vibe. So I thought, all right, so it's going to be slow. It's going to be kind of moody. But I thought, I, okay, so I, I got to see it. And so I, I actually, the first time I got to see this was in the, oh, pardon me, was on the big screen at Cinema de Park about maybe about a month ago. And I didn't like it. Mm. I recognized that there were people who would cream their jeans for it. But I, <laughs> I think I went in, and, and actually this is something I wanted to talk about uh, just in brief, is I think we forget that our headspace to a large extent determines our experience with the film. Right. Right. So that that day, I kind of went in expecting, you know, okay, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a kind of a folksy horror, like a folk horror, but it's gonna be a linear narrative. What I got, I was just my brain went no. I I wanted <laughs> A B's. I wanted plot, not vibes. And you know what is this this old timey skinnamarink bullshit? <laughs> right, right. It's interesting because like. I just, you know, and I'm my experience juxtaposed against that is uh, I'm used to watching films Bren recommends. And this, <laughs> within that context, w was, was quite good because my expectations were more from coming. And all jokes aside, though, um, this I'm coming from an expectation of we're going to be watching obscure films, experimental films, films that are, you know, in a different sort of a niche and that'll be new, ex new experiences for me. Whereas you maybe had something a little more, uh, you know, kind of mainstream expectation or, or comparable to the full core. So you're, you're spot on though, about how, how those expectations absolutely uh, shape our experiences with these. Yeah. Like when we watched, uh, when we did reap town, one mm -hmm. of the reasons we did reap town and not a horror in the high desert to Minerva, was because when I watched Horror in the High Desert 2 the first time, I had to rent it through, via VPN through an American website, and the VPN just fucked everything up. So the audio was out of sync. It was a pain in the ass to set up. And so I didn't enjoy the film. I was super pissed that I thought, because I liked Horror in the High Desert. So I thought, oh, part two is going to be good. 
but then it turns out, no, it, this is dog shit. The experience wasn't good. The film might have been, but the experience wasn't. That's it. So I actually bought it because I, I like Dutch marriage as a filmmaker. And so I bought it and I watched it again when I was like more together and w- when I was, didn't have all that baggage going in. And I enjoyed it so much more. And that was very much the case with Ennis Main. When I, when I kind of went in the second time, watched it here in my apartment, uh, had done some research on what the filmmaker Mark Jenkin was trying to say, I enjoyed it so much more. And so sometimes I think it's important for people to re- recognize like, ah, maybe the movie doesn't suck. Maybe you just were not in a place to watch it. So I would say that does not apply to demonic. It still sucks. <laughs> That's it. Show's over. <laughs> I will die on this hill, Joseph. I love that movie. I'm going to watch it again tonight just to spite you. Oh, you do that. But one last thing I want to touch on, and before we actually talk about the movie itself, just because this kind of pops out at me as a, as a real, kind of an interesting point. Have you ever found when you watch a movie with someone and they're not enjoying it, that it affects your ability to enjoy it? Do you yeah, have that? 100%. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife and I have different tastes in films, and we've, there have been points where we've watched films together, and I really was enjoying the film, and I could tell she was checking out, and then I started to kind of just, the gravity of that started pulling me out of the film, out of enjoying the film, because I could tell she was disengaging from it, and Delving a little into psychology, I think there's part of us that wants other people to like the things we want or the sure, other, wants absolutely. other people to like the things we like, because that's yep. an affirmation of our values and being pro-social animals. You know, we don't want to be excluded from, from the tribe, so to speak. So when someone else doesn't like something that you like, then you, there, there's this kind of fear of like, is something wrong with my tastes or, or my sensibilities? And yeah, I've absolutely experienced that. Yeah. Again, it is so much goes into how we consume art that I just don't think we always consider that when we, when we evaluate something. And again, th- this is why I was, I was happy to be given a second chance to evaluate Ennis Main because I fucking loved it the second time around. And we're going to talk about that in the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph, what did you think of Ennis Main? I thought it was a very well-crafted film. This filmmaker is artistically gifted. There were so many Absolutely. things that were well done. Overall, there were just so many things about it that were outstanding. Um, the visuals, you know, the color, the setting, the shots, the lighting, the imagery, it was, that was all outstanding. Um, the subtlety of how the narrative was delivered was was masterful, in my opinion. Um, you know, they didn't have any kind of major exposition. There was so much of showing with very little telling. Sometimes the radio would maybe tell little bits, but they let that unfold in such a great way. Um, there was a clear artistic vision for the film overall. They established a sense of isolation for this character. There's so many other things that we can get into that I love the retro feel of it, the old generator, the old radio, the old shortwave radio. If there's a critique, there was a point where it felt like it was dragging on a little bit. There was a point where it felt like I was noticing, oh, I'm looking at my watch, there's 45 minutes left. But still, everything that was done was done with excellence, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Again, the film was directed by British director Mark Jenkin, and this is his second feature. 
His first was a black and white film called Bait, which I think came out, I want to say in 2019 or 2020. And Ennis Main is his second. He made a number of short films prior to this, but uh, this was only his second narrative. And this was actually his first narrative film in color. Okay. Because uh, prior to this, he'd done everything in straight up black and white. And he felt that for this one, in order to properly give the period setting and to, to really kind of use the full visual language that he, he had envisioned, it needed to be color. And you're right. I mean, the way it's shot, he uses a 16 millimeter Bolex camera. And he said that he wanted to make it look like a lost film from the 70s. Okay. It because absolutely he was very, looks like that too. Oh, it really does. It looks and feels like that. It, it, like, I, I don't think there's anything that feels period inauthentic to me. And he, he was very much inspired by, I don't know, if, have you ever seen any of the uh, public service films from Britain from the 70s? The, the ones that like warn kids off of flying kites near power lines, things like this? I have not. No. Okay, that's actually worth looking up on YouTube. I've only seen one, okay. one or two. Paul, uh, my co-host over on uh, Ghost Story Guys, for those who don't know, he showed me, and they're genuinely creepy. Interesting. You know, these 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 really talented directors were given public public broadcasting money to make these PSAs, basically. And there was one Paul sent me. I think it was about playing in water, and it's genuinely spooky. Jenkins was was uh, was inspired by by stuff like this and stuff like. Oh, what was the film? Stone Tape? Uh, I have seen that, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he was inspired by things like that. Yeah, I totally see that. I mean, it has a lot of the same sort of feel to it. Absolutely. Interesting. See, I've never seen Stone Tape. I I watched that a while back because I I did a video about the Stone Tape theory, which, you know, with my interest in paranormal and kind of the science and or pseudoscience side of it. This is one of those explanations for place memory and things like that. So right. um, I watched the film as kind of research for, for a video I did on that. It's fascinating how that actually has uh, led to kind of becoming part of the lexicon of when people talk about place memory or stone tape theory, this idea that maybe apparitions or some of them are sort of a recorded residual of some sort of traumatic experience in a place that film stone tape is where that term stone tape theory comes from. It is. Yeah. And, and really that, I guess that kind of applies here because the film essentially concerns a, a haunted Island. Right. Right. Because it, it tells a story, as we said in the intro of a woman who's never named, but she's referred to in the credits as the volunteer. And she works clearly alone on this Island and Maine, which means stone Island in Cornish. And th- this is one of the things I want to talk about is one of the things I got the second time around, because I, I did a lot of the research for the show by that point, is I didn't understand that Cornish was not only a language, but the Cornish people who live in the south of England, they are a distinct ethnic minority. Hmm. I didn't know that. There are Celtic people whose origins date back to the Britons who lived in England in the Middle Ages. So it's, it's an entire language. It's an entire culture. In fact, the poster, there were posters printed in English and Cornish. And this is, I believe, uh, the first time a film poster has ever been printed in Cornish. Interesting. And Jenkin really made a point of making the ghosts of the film all relevant to the history of Cornwall. Okay. Cornwall, like a lot of parts of England, Cornwall was very heavily centered around mining. So there are a number of mining ghosts in the film. They're, I mean, they're presented almost as men, but they are in fact dead. They're gone. 
And he wanted to make the film for these people who were huge parts of, of making England what it became, but are often forgotten. So miners, the, uh, the people on the Gavenic, the boat which sank, you know, the, the fishermen who make their living from the sea and who, again, all, all of whom help power the great engine of commerce, but who are considered expendable. And it went like knowing a bit more about Cornwall going into it, I was really able to appreciate it that much more because it's one thing to, you know, oh, that's spooky. But when you understand that Cornwall has a May Day celebration, so that's why things started happening as she got to the beginning of May. This is one of the, the great things about folk horror like this. If it's done well and with, with authenticity is those subtexts that if you dig deeper, you find you know, um, you know, Saloon, we talked about that a bit with that being sort of a, a regional folk horror and, oh, and then, yeah. you know, you've, you know, and you've done some of the research on this and it's just fascinating to hear how, as you dig deeper, you find there are layers that are just under the surface that unless you go exploring those or you're already familiar with that, you, you might not think of it. Right. But how, you know, I think there's, there's so many people who just when they're trying to create something with a certain artistic aesthetic, they just look for something that feels a certain way. And that, you know, and they're like, oh, hey, you know, uh, the seven maidens in their outfits are going to feel creepy and miners in a, you know, down in a, in a mine shaft are going to feel creepy and they just throw them in there. Uh, but the best artists have an intentionality uh, and, you know, an authentic connection to the actual you know, the lore and history of these places and spaces in, you know, in their art. And so I think that just speaks to, you know, how, how talented this filmmaker is. Absolutely. And that's something that frustrates me when people say, oh, horror movies, you know, horror doesn't need politics, you know, horror is just mm -hmm. a guy slashing a bunch of, you know, whatever. And, and that's such a surface reading of horror because horror has always been a reflection of the anxieties generated in the age from which it comes. I mean, I read this book a while back and it was boring as fuck, but there was, the thesis was interesting. And one of the things it talked about was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I mean, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a legitimate masterpiece. That is a fantastic movie. Have you ever seen it? I actually have not. I obviously am familiar with it, but. I, I would watch it. It is shockingly non-bloody. Okay. The, the, the actual really bloody films were the sequels. I mean, it, yeah. it, there is violence, uh, but it's not bloody. And it's, it's exceptional. But what's fascinating about it is the subtext of the film is in the South, the people have turned on their own. Things have gotten so bad economically in the 70s that they're preying on each other. You know, the fact that it's a family, it's the, the I can't remember the name of the family, but these folks stumble on this house full of psychotics, but it's like a perversion of the family unit because it's about how basically the, the crushing poverty has, ca has caused the dissolution of these traditional things. And, but most people just look at it and go, oh, well, it's a, you know, I like it because the chainsaws. I, I shouldn't say most, but these kind of people who, these, who say, well, the you know, horror is just what's on the screen. Don't try and bring politics into it. This shit is just inherently political. It, it just is. And, and, and you and I have seen, not to keep banging this drum, but we've seen movies that are made without any kind of subtext. And they bring this show to a crashing halt. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
there has to be some sort of depth there for for the art to be worthwhile and and when you actually have <laughs> had the experience of seeing something that is egregiously devoid of that it becomes much more stark how important those subtexts are another thing that I, i've seen in films that i really find frustrating this is more of a modern phenomenon definitely but it's folks who don't know how to make subtext subtext mm-hmm. everything is just yeah. text right you know i i i call them and it's not a very original name but that's fine because they're not original films i call it uh, the real babadook is the fr- is the friends we made along the way <laughs> Because there was, you know, there was the Babadook, which is an exceptional horror film. And in a lot of ways, Babadook is a metaphor for grief because this family is dealing with the loss of, you know, mother and son are dealing with the loss of the father and it's tearing them apart. But again, you can enjoy it just as a horror movie. But if you look at it a little bit deeper, oh yeah, no, this, this is about grief. Whereas I've seen a a handful of new films and I'm not going to say which because I don't want to be shitty, but they're text. You know, the film may as well be called Trauma because it, that's just, and you just know, at some point you know, okay, so he's going he's gonna to stab the monster and then the monster's going to turn out to be his mom or his friend or whatever. And then the real monster was inside us all along. Jesus Christ, is it over yet? And that's what I appreciated about Ennis Mayne is that Jenkin has, he's just on his surface made a film about a woman who's, as you say, I mean, descending into madness. But if you look under the surface, it's an exploration of Cornish history. It's a nod to the people who made the country what it is and to a culture which has for a long time been forgotten and kind of ground under heel. And, but it, it works on so many levels that you can kind of enjoy it wherever you come to it. You talk about like, you know, the, the, all the, the, the filmmakers who try to follow, right, and do what the Babadook did well but fail to do that, uh, uh, you know, with any sort of, uh, skill, uh, you know, that's comparable. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the, what sets apart the really cutting edge artists and the best artists is they do something in its original. It generally has more depth than you realize. Uh, and you, as you dig deeper, you start to find that depth and then the copycats all follow and they're all trying to do that. And, um, you know, listen, I don't want to sound, you know, like I'm talking, you know, down my nose at these people. These people are better filmmakers than I am, the, the people who follow. I, I'm not a filmmaker. But in comparison to the original, you know, the, the trendsetters in terms of those genres, that's the difference, I think, between the really great artists and, and the mid-tier artists. They, they think they're doing the Babadook, right? They're yeah. think, they think they're following that. But they're doing a version of it that lacks the soul, lacks the depth, and turns, as you described, those subtexts into text. And they, they think they've just done the same thing, but they haven't. They, they've done a very surface-level iteration of it, but they're missing what made the original so great. And I think that's when you find those artists who do something really creative. That's, I feel like, the difference is... You know, and people, the novice will say, oh, I could do that. I could write a story like that. Well, now that you've seen it written, you could write a story like that, and it still wouldn't actually be as good or as deep because you think you're doing it, right? That's um, it. So it, that just, you know, that, that's just one of those things about the, the, the great artists is their ability to pull that kind of thing off originally. Another parallel I could draw between this and The Babadook is that the filmmaker who made The Babadook, Jennifer Kent, her follow-up to that, she didn't make a straight-up horror film. She actually made a, a revenge film 
called the Nightingale, which is searing. Basically an Irish indentured servant in, I want to say Tasmania in the 1800s. And she is living, basically, you know, she's there, she's an indentured servant to this one uh, officer and he refuses to let her go. And when she tries to, you know, she has technically served her time. She's, she's done her service, but he won't sign off and, and, and free her. And savage things happen. I'm not even going to describe it, but it's an exceptional film. And Mark Jenkins, his film prior to this was not a horror film. Bait is a, is a drama from what I understand. I, I wasn't able to see it because it's not available to me in Canada. But it, yeah, it's not a horror film. And when he first started writing Annis Mayne, it wasn't quite a horror film either. And so I think that's, you know, we, again, sometimes you get folks who just say, well, I, I'm only going to make horror films. But if they can accomplish multiple things, I think that sort of points to that, that greater artistic skill. I mean, even the, the filmmaker Adam Green, who's done the Hatchet films, I mean, sure, people will say, oh, Hatchet, you know, they're just slasher films. But even those, you know, if you listen to Green's commentaries, there is depth happening there. And he's also done thrillers. He's also done, uh, he did a sitcom for two seasons. So he's able to kind of hop genres while still, you know, while still being able to come back to horror and make something effective. And so I'm really curious to see if what Jenkins does after this, whether he, his next film is horror or whether he, he goes in a, another direction entirely. Well, it sounds like to me, what you're describing is someone who is determined to make a good film with a good story and isn't trying to necessarily fit a genre. They, they will make the film and it will fit into a genre based on the story. Whereas, you know, the, the, the filmmakers who will remain unnamed are literally just trying to create a formula for a specific genre of film. And they are trying to make certain genre films. And, and that obviously we've talked more than we need to about how badly that failed. Uh, but, (laughs) but you know, this, this, this filmmaker and some of the other filmmakers you're talking about they're putting the story first, the film first, and making the film they have a vision for and not trying to fit it into a genre. It just then ends up fitting into a genre sometimes, and sometimes it, it transcends a genre. But it's not worrying about trying to be a horror film. It's worrying about being a great film, and then it ends up becoming whatever it becomes. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that Annis Main, up until the point where the volunteer is woken up in the middle of the night by the sound of children singing outside. Up to that point, it's not a horror film. It's just a, a very quiet drama about a woman living alone on this island off the coast of Cornwall. And then that is sort of the point where it becomes, that. then it, it, it is a horror film. Because, again, she wakes up in the night, she hears children singing, she goes down, and it, yeah, things start to fracture. That really is kind of where she breaks. And, but, but yeah, up, up until that point, it works as a, as just a drama. And, and honestly, if you took away the horror elements, you still have a compelling character study of a woman who has loved and lost. And, you know, you discover that she's become attached to, to the fisherman who brings the supplies. They, they were, you know, periodic lovers and they had a, yeah, they had an affair of sorts, clearly between two people who are not very connected to their feelings, but there is you know, mutual care there. And she has loved and lost this person. So again, even if you take away the horror elements, the film just works on a character level, which is really impressive when you consider how little dialogue there is. I mean, that's part of what I thought was so masterful about this film and this filmmaker is that they created a narrative with 
very little dialogue. And even the dialogue, the limited dialogue is not deep at all. You know, it, it's like the story is deep and the narrative is deep, but the dialogue is very basic. Right. And that is part of what makes uh, this so brilliant in terms of the ability to create that narrative and not, you know, like so many filmmakers lean, lean heavily on the dialogue to cr create the characters and to, to establish and put forward the, the, the narrative. And, and this filmmaker didn't, you know, need anything uh, in terms of profound lines to be delivered. You know, it was like, who's out there? You, I thought you weren't yeah. supposed to pick the flowers. I mean, very basic lines, and it they it almost doesn't matter what they said because that's not what the character or the story were driven by. That's it, and I, I think a huge portion of this, uh, pardon me, a huge portion of the credit is due to the performances. Uh, Mary Woodvine plays the volunteer, and she's just she just owns the screen the whole time she's there. Apparently, she does a lot of theater in Cornwall, and it shows because she's very, again, she can just command the screen without doing a whole bunch. And again, when she and the fisherman, played by, I think, Edward Rowe, are in, together in the living room, again, both of them have this, this way of showing that these are two people who are maybe a little too closed off for their own good, but there is still mutual consideration there and mutual, like a mutual affection, but it's, it's never spoken. And as you say, a, a lazier filmmaker would have to say something. He would have to say, you know, oh, I wish you would talk to me more or whatever. You know, and, and the most you get out of this is, is the volunteer says to, to the fisherman, you should stay. And he says, you know, I can't. And the brilliance of that is it works whether you're talking about the situation of just someone who has a job and has to keep doing the job, which in a lot of ways is, is the nature of, work, of working class people. I wish you could stay home. I wish I could too, but I have to go do what I have to go do. And, and, and in order to keep us alive, that's what I have to do. And whether it's going into the mines or going out to sea or going, you know, I grew up in a mill town. You go work at the sawmill 12 hours a day, come home puking up cedar dust. So it works on that level, but it also works because by this point in the narrative, we discover he is dead. He is a he is an hallucination. And so this is sort of works in, on two different levels. And again, it's just, it's effortless. Something else I wanted to touch on was something that, again, I, I quasi-noticed the first time, but after reading about Jenkins' process, I just really watched for it the second time and kind of fell in love with it, is the sound design. He doesn't record any sound on set. Everything is added in post. So he, he builds his own soundscapes. So everything that you're seeing on screen is, in effect, added later. And when you start to watch it and you start to listen for the layers, he makes his own sound effects as well. He does his own Foley. You know, me being an audio nerd and, and doing the audio dramas, uh, transmissions from the void for ghost story guys, you know, I have some passing experience with this. Obviously I'm not doing Dolby mixes, but you know, I, I've made soundscapes and he does it so well that you don't notice it's happening. If he, if he, if he hadn't told me that that's how he did it. I, it never would have occurred to me that that's what was going on. Even the dialogue is recorded in post. That is interesting. Yeah, uh, and there, it's all subtle, right? The the, the you know the sounds of the um, the marching and uh, with with the maids and the the rocks she drops into the mine shaft and the limited dialogue and the generator <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. But, um, 
Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the things I enjoyed, which were more kind of the themes and, and things from the film. Uh, little bits I noticed, and also how I think it compared to some of the other films we've talked about. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is this as a film that was a descent into madness, at least is how I interpreted that. And, you know, at right. one level, you know, we watched another film, you know, that we've, we've done a podcast about the outwaters, which was also a sort of a, this venture into madness uh, in a very different sort of a way. And, you know, I thought this was a much more understated and moving kind of a, pro, you know, approach towards sure. that. Uh, but there were some interesting things with it, like the way that they established the sense of routine, you know, uh, every day she went, and she took the the temperature measurements of the flowers and, and noted any changes. And most days there were no changes. And then she'd go back and she would drop a rock in a very deliberate way into the mine shaft. And then she would go by that sort of monolith statue monument thing. And something about that sense of routine, I think, one, kind of speaks to the isolation of a person who has nothing else to do, no one to interact with. So they create these routines to keep themselves sane. And from that, you were able to see when the so the breaks in her routine, I thought, were sort of representative of the breakdown of her sanity, in a sense. You know, there was the point where one of these days things were very different and she seemed in a hurry and she sort of haphazardly tossed a stone into the well. But then OCD kind of kicks in and she comes back and she kind of has to drop it in the same way, right? And then you see later in the film, looking down that mine shaft, she sees, you know, one of the miners. So where, where she's fully sort of descended into this, um, you know, I, I thought it was kind of funny that, you know, uh, when she ran out of tea, you knew that shit was about to get real, right? You know, because this That's is a Brit, right? Yeah. right? Uh, this is England. Yeah. But, but the sense of routine in a sort of a weird way, kind of gave you this baseline against which you could see how when the routine broke, that was when things were kind of going sideways for her. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because there was a moment later that I found really poignant because I, I've definitely had this experience when she has the, the hallucination and sort of it breaks through that no, the, the, the Gavenic, the boat which would bring her supplies with her, her sort of lover, it sank and he died. And that she just loses her shit. I mean, obviously this is a memory. She knows this has already happened. But you see her, she throws multiple rocks down the mine shaft. And that, to me, that's, that was such a heartbreaking moment because it's almost like you're trying to make things normal. You're thinking if I can just if I can just do the normal things, things will be normal again. Maybe if I just throw enough rocks down there, if I try and till that ground over and over again, maybe I can make things okay. I can make things the way they were. And I think we've all been through that in some way or another, where you try to retrace the steps where things went wrong, and you think, fuck, 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 fuck. Well, okay, if I just again, if I keep trying, you know, it's almost like a kid just wishing they could make it right. And yeah, I found that really, really poignant. And I, in, to a certain degree, I understand on another level because, you know, as someone who's neurodivergent, uh, undiagnosed, but I'm fucking weird enough, it seems very likely, you know, I'm very much a ch uh, both a person who requires routine and who rejects it at every turn. And so it, it's, it's this fascinating thing where, again, I understand how bad things can go when you, when you don't throw the rock down the well at exactly the right time. 
so speaking of the rock thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I want to maybe since you're kind of talking about the routine and the rocks and, and that t- connection, there's a point at towards the very end where she picks up the very big rock and she's looking down and you see the, the, the miner down there just staring up at her and she's, she holds onto it while, and then she puts it down and she doesn't drop it down the mine shaft. Do you, I wasn't sure what, I thought the significance of that was, but it seems like there's certainly something like, you know, certainly she was choosing not to drop it on the miner uh, potentially. And he's just standing there. Um, is this, I, I don't know. What, what, what do you make of that? That's a good question. I was wondering that when I watched it, I mean, I almost think that's shocking her out of this loop mm-hmm. she'd been in. You know, sometimes when I was younger and, and when I was really in bad emotional places, I would find that I would repeat the same sentence over and over and over. When I say I was, if I was having an argument with someone, mm-hmm. I would just repeat the same sentence over and over and over. And it would take something to kind of shock me out of that loop for me to kind of think, okay, now I'll try and deal with this problem. But I would just, yeah, like in stress, I would repeat it. And I kind of took that as whatever was going on, like that shocked her out of this moment she was having, because she was in this moment of terrible grief and terrible loss. And I almost wonder if, if the, seeing the minor was meant to be, you know, you are not alone in your suffering. We are all people, like we have all lost. We are all, we are all the ghosts of the past. And, and something that, that Jenkins has talked about in interviews is one of the things he kind of wanted to emphasize was this idea of we are all so small in the face of time. You know, these, the, the miners and the ball maidens who were the, uh, sort of the, the women in the, the outfits at the end, you know, the, the men would mine the coal and then the ball maidens would dress the coal on the surface. And this is sort of one of those parts of mining that apparently is not often talked about. You know, mining is always talked about as a male pursuit, but in actual fact, yeah, the, you know, women were just as much part of it, but you know, we, it, we're all such an integral part and in the moment we're also kind of occupied with our doing and our, our machinations. We forget how insignificant we are in the, in the grand scheme of things. And I wonder if, if the seeing the minor down there was, was her being shocked into like, okay, yeah, my grief is bad. Things are bad, but also I am not the only one who has hurt. I'm not the only one who has suffered. So kind of not check your privilege. I was going to say check your privilege. That's not right. But, but just, you know, calm down and deal with it. So there was, uh, and that's interesting. I had, and I, I had a little bit different kind of theme with that. And I, I don't have this fully formulated idea of exactly what I thought it was. But as I watched it, she was standing there with this large rock that obviously would be very dangerous if it was dropped on someone. Sure. Uh, and although the miner was not, was, was a ghost, a hallucination, a vision, who knows what, it felt like she was in this place where she was going to drop this and she was considering whether to drop it on him. And he's just right. standing there staring up. So it's this moment of she has this decision whether to act aggressively and violently or not. And she's and, and then she cho- chooses not to. Now, I don't know what the significance of that is. And, it, and maybe it'll, it, it, it's just another layer of what you're talking about that's pulling her out of it was part of coming out is, wait, no, I'm not a person who's going to drop a, a rock on someone's head. And then that's what pulls her out of it. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'd love to know 
uh, if the filmmaker had a specific idea for that or if that was just one of those things that was meant to be interpreted. You know, one other thing, uh, there's there some interesting little notes. Did you catch the name of the book she was reading and what the kind of the the, the what was said on the on the front of the book? Uh, yeah, it was, the book was a, a blueprint for survival. Yeah. And then there was a quote on the front, a very big quote, like it was from a review or something. And uh, did you catch that? What that said? It was uh, it said nightmarishly convincing. After reading it, nothing seems quite the same anymore. So it was interesting because the, the title and that quote just thematically tie in, right? You know, surviving perhaps grief or surviving whatever it was and and you know how that that quote, that description of it nightmarishly convincing after reading it, nothing seems quite the same anymore, just almost seems like a description of her experience. So um, just, just one of those little details that is just kind of in there that most people might not even take the time to kind of really look at. But again, some of that interesting uh, little subtext there. Yeah. And, and fascinating, fascinatingly enough, I was reading about that and Jenkins said that was more or less an accident. The book was not intended to be, uh, it, it was sort of, he, he lo- was looking for books written in 1973 and, fa- and a, came across that one and, and chose that one. And he like later sort of realized, oh, okay, yeah, I can actually understand, you know, I, I can sort of, this fits into the, the overall theme, but apparently it was not originally part of the plan. It's, it's like, I don't know if you noticed some of the shots of the water running backwards. Mm-hmm. They did. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And he said that was legitimately because he didn't have enough footage. And so <laughs> he just, you know, cause basically they shot all the stuff with the cast over the course of about three weeks in the spring. And then he, and over the course of the summer, he took his camera and went around shooting B-roll. But he said because he shoots film, he can't afford to just shoot willy-nilly like he can with digital. So he had to be selective. And what that led to was in the edit, shit, I don't have enough footage. So he reused some shots of the water but ran it backwards. And then he realized, okay, I, now I have to make this make thematic sense. And it was kind of one of those happy accidents. And I think the book was, was a little bit like that too. Although something that occurred to me with that was the way she's living on that island is really the way, I mean, without the generator, of course, but that's the way people, the original inhabitants would have lived as well. And, you know, if the world ever kind of collapses under its own weight, society ever collapses under its own weight, the way some people think it will, it is also the way we would have to live then. So, she, you know, that is in a lot of ways, it is a blueprint for survival. You know, it, it, the way this, this little life she has carved out for herself. And again, it's just a, a fascinating little parallel. And it sort of made me wonder, you know, I, I sometimes, I don't know if this goes anywhere, Joseph, I just want to talk about it. But the film made me think about something. Uh, it, it, I don't know if you've ever seen the Friday the 13th films. I have actually, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I think it's six. I think it's part six. Uh, horror nerds, if I'm wrong, let us know. Weird Together Pod or Weird Together Show at gmail.com. But basically, the character of Tommy Wallace in part four is a little boy. No, it's not Tommy Wallace. Tommy Jarvis, I think. Yeah, I think it's Tommy Jarvis. But, anyways, yeah, Tommy Wallace is Halloween. But, anyways, so he's a little kid in part four, kills Jason. And then in part six, he's a grown man. Now, there's only a few years between the films, but obviously, the timeline is meant to be about 20 years. And it kind of fascinated me because I think it, to me, it unintentionally posits this future 
which is basically going to be about the year 2000, although the film never says that, where they're essentially just living in like the 80s, but 20 years later. And I, I always thought about that. I always wondered what would the world be like if we didn't have the digital revolution, if we didn't have sort of this tech race where everything became you know, hyper-connected, hyper-fast, and we just kind of kept living in that moment. And part of me sort of yearns for that in a way, you know, for the world of my childhood, but extended through to adulthood. Because I grew up, you know, you and I both grew up pre-internet, pre-digital. And so we, we are part of that generation that has a foot in both worlds. And Ennis Main kind of made me think about that for the 70s. You know, that what if we had maintained that world where, you know, because the, the world of, of her world is not that different from the world of the miners. And again, I just wondered what, you know, this film seemed to me to be like the extension of that. What is the world like if we just live the 70s, but 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, how different would that have been? Again, I don't really have a point. I just, it fills me with a sort of wistfulness that I can't, I can't quite explain. Uh, I, so I, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily what you say to that, but I just, I wanted to tell someone. I've had this thought in my head for years. And I, so now I, you, you get, you, you're a doctor, right? I unloaded on you. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, I you know, we, they call the, the generations that are born into this new technological era, uh, digital natives, right. You know, they're born into it and we are not, we, we kind of, we, you know, acclimated to it. And I think there's some, it'll be interesting down the road to kind of look back and see what like kind of gen X and, you know, and, and thereabouts how that impacts our experiences you know and having i feel like it's an advantage to know both worlds in terms of a, a lot of different things like uh, you know things like ability to write and research and you know we we, I, we were doing a panel discussion at the university where i'm at years ago and they talked about kind of the younger generations millennials and gen z's and one of the things that talk, came up is like uh a lot of like People um, in the younger generations, I sound like an old man saying that, uh, <laughs> uh, but you research is you Google and you look up the first couple things that you read the first yeah. few things that come up, right? It's a much more cursory sort of exploration. And, and, you know, we're from, we're from a generation that at some point had to go and dig a little deeper, right? Sure. And knows how to dig a little deeper. So now when we are faced with, when we have these tools, I feel like we probably know how to discern them a little better, I would think, um, from that experience. So there's some interesting things. But at the same time, I found myself thinking, as much as I enjoy non-digital things, hanging out with people, good conversations, and things like that, and relationships, there was part of me that was like, oh, man, I'd be so bored. You know, it's like, <laughs> so as much as I espouse the virtues of my generation, you know, having the ability to deal with life without pre-internet, um, or at least internet being ubiquitous, um, I also have sort of been pulled into and acclimated to being used to being entertained. And when Wi-Fi goes down, you know, for some technical reason here at home, I also am just like, you know, cursing at the universe for, you know, <laughs> man, you know, when's the, when's the internet going to be back up? Yeah, so... So, yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword there, I guess. It, just to, to put a button on that, I, I had this experience the other morning. I, I'm trying to, when I go to bed, I try to charge my phone on the other side of the room. 
because one of my bad habits in the morning, because I'm very much not a morning person. So one of my bad habits in the morning is if I plug it in within arm's reach of where I'm at, I will kind of look at it instead of getting out of bed. Instead of getting up to make breakfast and go to the gym or whatever, I'll look at my phone for an hour sometimes. And so I, I, all right, you know, try and put it somewhere where it's not within easy reach. Uh, But the other morning, I had it plugged in on the other side of the room, but there was a beautiful sunny morning. I didn't want to get out of bed just yet. And I had my book next to me that I'm reading. Uh, I happened to pick up a paperback copy of James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain when I was wandering around used bookshops a little while ago. And so I just had this weird experience, which I realized is something that people did for a hell of a lot longer than they've been looking at their phones, which is, oh, I don't want to get out of bed yet. I'll just read my book. What a crazy concept. Words on the printed page. Where do I plug it in? You know, it was, I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's, I, I saw something somewhere research about how when you first get up, if, if you first thing you do is go to a screen, you know, and uh, like a computer screen or phone screen, there's something about that, this, that is disruptive in kind of the, the process, the, the cognitive processes or whatever it is that is involved in waking up and feeling refreshed. And I'm not a psychologist, uh, so I can't speak very uh, profoundly or accurately on that, but there's something to that where, and, and based on that, I also try to make sure that I don't immediately grab my, my screen, right? I try to do right. a few other things and buy a few other things that might only just be a couple of minutes, but I try to not have the first thing my eyes see when I'm waking up uh, be my phone screen. What a concept. Yeah, I got to try. I got to work a little harder on that because I've, I've, I've kind of come back around to, oh, it's just plugged in next to my bed. What could go wrong? Uh, mm-hmm. Can't imagine why I feel so shitty in the morning, Joseph. It's all very, very, <laughs> very much a mystery. I guess we're coming in for a landing here. Do you have any final thoughts on Ennis Main? You know, just that it, it was a very well done film. Uh, I mean, of the films we've done, just in terms of the artistry, this is on a very short list of the best films for me. You know, it's up there with, to me, Saloon and a Wounded Fawn as, as some of the best we've looked at. It's very, no wasted motion in terms of the artistry and, and such. Um, you know, there may be some things those other films do better, but something about this was very cohesive and, and just very well put together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a fully formed artistic vision. And uh, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it, you know, you and I have generally agreed that Saloon is the best movie we've done. And I would put mm-hmm. Ennis Main up there with Saloon mm-hmm. because I think, I, it's, I think it's, it's on that short list. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, it, it in, in a lot of ways, they're similar in that they both depict very distinct cultures in very unique geographical regions that I think are not otherwise served on film. I mean, Christ, I, I was married in Cornwall, Joseph. I was married in the, in the city of Penzance in Cornwall, and I knew none of this stuff. Uh, where Jenkins lives Newland. I went there with Nick prior to our wedding. And again, that there's all the artistic community there. It's all this history there, standing stones. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the standing stones. That's all in Cornwall. And I had no idea, just as I knew fuck all about the Saloon Delta. So no, I, I couldn't agree more. These things are definitely on our short list. If you haven't seen Ennis Main yet and you want to check it out, it's rentable on VOD platforms everywhere. I think it's about five bucks. It is very much worth your time. Again, support independent film, folks. Every dollar you spend on independent film is a vote for more independent films. Do not pirate independent films. We're not generally fans of piracy anyways, but if you're going to do it, 
Do it for the big boys. Do it to Marvel. Do it to Disney. Those guys can afford it. But every dollar you spend on independent film encourages people to continue to make more of them. Every dollar you don't spend on it is a black mark against them because distributors won't make this shit if they don't think it's going to make money. You can say, well, that's crass, that's commercial. That's showbiz, baby. So pay your fucking money. Go see the movie. We cannot recommend it enough. And I think that's it. Joseph, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-1-3, Jokomo13. And you can find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule if you're into uh, NFL football. Fabulous. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky as Largely the Truth. You can find my podcast, The Ghost Story Guys, everywhere fine podcasts live and on YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with us, like was, as we said earlier, you can email us at weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. That's weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. If you have a theory on Ennis Main or you just want to talk about the films we've seen or comment on the, on the show, again, weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. All music on this podcast is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of the Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige. You can find The Revenants on streaming platforms everywhere, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. That's the Ghost Story Guys house label. And if you want to buy the albums directly, you can get them at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. And if you're going to buy The Revenants music, that is a place to do it. You can get it on iTunes, all that shit. But if you buy them direct from Elliot, you also get really detailed liner notes and art uh, he is an incredibly uh, meticulous artist. You don't get any of that crap with iTunes, unfortunately. It's just how it works. So if you want the full meal deal, get it from Elliot at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. We've been doing this now for a little over a year. It's so much fun just to get to hang out with, with my friend and talk movies and find new movies to bring to you guys. And, you know, our numbers keep going up every new episode and we just are so heartened by that we were charting i think in three countries now you know i think nice. one of them was like Ghana or so who knows somewhere unexpected but we're just thrilled 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 that you guys are enjoying the show tell your friends leave us a five-star review on itunes if you can and join us for our monthly live streams the next one this month joseph when is it march may 31st yes yes on may 31st That'll be at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 o'clock Pacific. And we will be, I believe, talking about the new film from director Spider-1, Bury the Bride. So I'm looking forward to that. Very. We enjoyed Allegoria. Yes, yes. And he seems like a cool guy. So, And I, I've, I've seen the film already. I really liked it. So I'm hoping, hoping you enjoy it too. But uh, you'll have to tune into the live stream to see. All right, folks. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? See you next time.